Hello and welcome to this download from Blackwell Online. My name is George Miller and my guest today is Australian novelist Peter Carey. In his illegal self, Carey's tenth novel, a young woman called Dial, who's just landed her dream job teaching at an elite university, finds herself on the run through a sequence of events linked to her past. With her is seven-year-old Che, who believes Dial is his mother. They'll soon find themselves half a world away from Che's Upper East Side home in a hippie community in rural Queensland. I asked Peter what the starting point for the novel was. Part of it is an incident in, in, in you know, 30 years ago in Australia when we, I was living in this hippie community where there's this gorgeous, lovely thing where no one ever asks you what you do. And it is very nice. You live somewhere and no one asks you what you do. Mm. And they really, because mm. you're just there. Anyway, well, so this American guy came, and he was perfectly pleasant, and uh, and he lived there for a while. And then one day there was this huge police raid with helicopters and whatever. We were not used to the helicopters too much, and um, he was wanted apparently for conspiracy to import cocaine into the United States and had come to Australia where he thought he was at the end of the earth. So firstly, I was always interested in that, that he, he'd, he'd, he'd arrived in, in, in Bielke Peterson's Queensland and it was really, literally, not melodramatically, a police state. So if you're going to run, it's not a really a smart... Anyway, he thought he'd, he was in forest, he was off the... And the other thing, there were a lot of comic things that happened as we went around with jars full of 20 cent pieces trying to ring his lawyer in Galveston, Texas and ask him coded questions mm. because we thought everyone was listening to our conversations from satellites. Mm. And, I, and I'd always sort of thought I'd like to write, I like the environment, I like the place, it seemed there would be something there. But that's not an idea for a book and I certainly didn't want to write about anything that really happened or that particular character. So I started to think, well, you know, maybe it's a woman and maybe it's a child. That's, and I had a pick, you know, in living in that area in those days, there were always hippie mothers with single mothers on mm. the road, you know, going between, to a festival or something. And there's these little boys trudging with their hippie mothers and the little boys were always so fiercely protective of their mothers. And so any, the new lovers who arrived always had to deal mm. with the little boy, mm. you know. So I thought of them, and I didn't. At that moment, I didn't really know who they were. I didn't know what their relationship was to each other. They had to be American because that was part of what it was. And I had this sort of image in my head of, of uh, when when there's a cyclone coming, everybody flees the area, and there's sort of people to beaches mm. and things come in. And you have this sort of huge, sort of stormy sky. It was really scary. And cars coming only one way with their lights yeah. on in the middle of the day. So I just thought it was like that and then going the other way. And I knew they were going to get picked up by these characters. I didn't really know what role those characters, uh, I didn't know what role Trevor, who becomes very important in the book, was going to play. Mm. But the time, was, was it sort of the historical moment? Was that something that very, very early on was fixed in your mind when I began to write it that image is that what you mean yeah yeah that when I began <coughs> that's the place I began to write mm. but until then, of course I'm thinking about all sorts of things and I'm reading about the weatherman and I'm doing this and the, because but we should, but it we should say the place book, to start the book takes place in the early in 1972 yeah after that sort of first wave of countercultural student resistance mm, mm. and the sort of living with the fallout of some of that in, in in many ways in the book yes absolutely well I don't know when the you know 
I think the Symbionese Liberation Army were still active at mm. that time, and I don't know what time. Yeah, so it was not all over in 72, but uh, I needed to invent a reason why they were on the run. Yeah. And this was the reason that I invented, and it was interesting to me because not in Queensland, but in Melbourne during the Vietnam War, I'd been sort of involved in the anti-war movement, not in a sort of an important role, but still on the board of the moratorium. Mm. I was a dog's body, really, but I was on the board. So it means, you know, you sort of know all these different people yeah. doing different things. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I had friends who were Maoists and friends who were Trots and friends who were, you know, communists. And my Maoist friends would tell me I was going to be shot after the revolution quite cheerfully. And when was the thing when one really believed there really was going to be a revolution, one really might get shot and get blah, blah, blah. So I was interested in, 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 in exploring that time but of course then I had to explore it in the United States where I hadn't lived during that time. Yeah. I wanted to go on to ask you about the two characters through whose eyes we see most of what mm. happens in the book. One is the young boy mm. who believes he's, he's eight years old, he's mm. been raised by his grandmother on the Upper East mm. Side in New York, a very, I think you described as a Victorian background. And the woman he believes is his mother who's known as Dial mm. in the book. Who, who goes with him to Australia. And you, you use their two sort of perspectives quite a lot mm. and you sort of shift in and out of those. And I wanted to ask you about how you, how you sort of orchestrated that or how you found a way to, to make, especially the young boys, sort of consciousness perce perceptions mm. credible. I, there were a lot, number of stages in this. The first thing that I did and in my initial desire was to write a book completely from the boys' point of view. And I think maybe there was something in that that was sort of protective of my own foreignness and not being American and not understanding things that I could take refuge in mm. a child's perspective for time and, mm. and get things wrong. And, I, and in my mind, it was really being narrated by the grown-up man who was in, in, in inhabiting his memory of what it was like yes. to be a child. So it was a, quite a complicated yeah. thing to be going on. But it pushed the language in an interesting way that I really liked. And I was very, I very, I stubbornly adhered to it, and even when it was, I knew there was something not working. It didn't really start to click, to answer the first part of the, mm. the question, I think, until I knew what Dial knew, and I knew where she'd been, and I knew what her background was, but I hadn't written it. It started to get very boring, simply from not having enough information, and so I really needed Dial's perspective, and I needed Dial's life, and I needed to know the reader to know what was at risk for her and all that sort of stuff. And so when the, mo the time when I finally gave in and began to do that, mm. uh, the book really clicked. The thing of, of actually inhabiting the boy's perspective was not really particularly difficult for me to do. After all, we are meant to do this. You know, I mean, we are meant to imagine what it is to be other. and. If I'm a man, I'm meant to be able to write from the you know, as a woman, and if I'm white, I'm from being black. Many people think you shouldn't do these things, but I think this is what we this mm. is what we are. But do you uh, think doing it from the perspective of a child presents particular difficulties because you've got to rein in so many things, or no. and, and yet be convincing? I've never been a woman, but I have <laughs> been a child, mm. and so in terms of placing yourself in the in that position, well, I, 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 I didn't find it a stretch. I mean, it's like, yeah. you know, people, when I wrote True History of the Kelly Gang, people said really wasn't it terribly restrictive 
to be limited by Ned Kelly's vocabulary and Ned Kelly's intellectual or bookish lack of lack of lack of literary education. So, well, no, because it's the very it's the very uh, restriction I think that really pushes the language into interesting ways mm. and makes. And after all, when we talk about all of these things, you know, about story and character, and the, the real point of the book is that, you know, to have the reader swimming in a river of words, and that, uh, that's how the words work and how mm. the words sing that really is the thing. And that's why a plot synopsis is the most stupid thing on earth, because it just eliminates everything, you know, like the pleasure of reading, finding out what's going to happen next, and swimming in that river of words. So the thing that was very attractive about writing from the boy's point of view is being able to push the language into somewhere new. So it's very, very attractive. Mm. And that's, I never thought about the difficulty of it. I just thought, what can I do to push and twist it? And can that make something yeah, new and interesting? The, the, the thing that is, well, it breaks the rules, you know, it breaks the, of what you're meant to do you know, is in terms of continually switching point of view you know, within a chapter or within a where you have the child's point of view and the next second you find yourself in Dahl's point of view. Mm. You're not meant to really do that, I think, but people do it. I think it's a, one of the great attractions of the book, that, yeah. that, that, those transitions. And, yeah. and also one of the other linguistic pleasures for me in reading the book was your descriptions of Australian nature and the situation in which they find themselves mm. in a very very sort of rich but very sort of compact descriptions. You talk about inky green forests and banana leaves like like f moving like fingers mm. and and afternoon slow and thick like ants. And I, I wondered if that was if that was something you'd had to to work on carefully to get that to pitch it the just thi right. I think the thing that produces those things is firstly just emotionally a, a sort of a, a certain intensity of feeling and almost impatience. And of course, me memory, but I'm prepared to betray memory at any second to make something work. But most particularly, an increasing desire that I have to sort of get rid of everything that isn't doing something. And if you get rid of, you cut off the fat, and so you just, in the end, you, you're left with the thing you want to say, and then you want to nail it to the next thing you want to say. And if you can do that, you'll you may make something new, and mm. you may make something quite beautiful, and still be coherent, of course, and still yes. not leave the re re so the, the sort of distillation or the cutting away is something I've sort of become rather obsessed with, and it's a great source of pleasure too.